0: This is a brief passage this morning. I intended to finish Revelation chapter 1, and the more time I spent in it, the uh, more clear it was that I I couldn't finish it. This was like a vacation stop. If you guys are like me, when we go on vacation, I know where I'm going, how long I'm going to be there, and what the next stop is. And I got to verse 9, and and I decided it was uh, like some places on vacation, it was too important to hurry past. Before we get to verse 9, in fact, we're only covering one half of verse 9, the first half. Uh, Before we get to that, let me tell you very briefly about one of my favorite people in history, and that is Winston Churchill, great prime minister of Great Britain in the last century. There are several biographies written about him, and probably any of them would be worth reading just because Of The remarkable life this guy led and really the very very important, valuable ways God used him. Some remarkable stories about God's providence in his life, uh, early and late, uh, but really uh, someone worth knowing something about. Uh, His beginnings, however, did not give much foretelling about the greatness that would be heaped upon him later in life. Now, he was born to an aristocratic, wealthy family, so that was clearly in his favor all his life. But literally, his dad told him, Winston, you're not bright enough to do anything important in life. You'll never be a professional. You don't have the brains, so go to the military. Make your career the military. If anybody's military, that's not meant to be an insult, but that's what his dad told him. You're not bright enough. You'll never succeed at anything important. So just settle for a career. I can get you in the front door on, in the military. And he was in the Boer War. He was a sickly kid. Uh, Some remarkable stories out of South Africa during the Boer War about him, but came back, not a great beginning, came back, tried to get into politics, lost like Lincoln, lost all his early elections, did not bode well either, got involved in politics. Um, By the time World War II came around, he was an older man, he was not only older, about 65 years old in 1940, he was on the lee side of his life politically as well. He had taken, strongly so, political positions that were very unpopular in Britain. And when World War II came up, he was a bench warmer. He was sitting on the sidelines. His opinion was not coveted and was not valued. And that's uh, we'll leave Winston at that point right now, and we'll get into Revelation 1, verse 9. We'll touch on him a little later. Revelation 1, 9, John the Apostle continues to write. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. That's what we'll cover this morning. Remember that John the Apostle, like Winston Churchill, is old when this is written. He's he's at the tail end of a very long life. He was the exception to the rule among the apostles in that he was not martyred, uh, as far as we know at all, but certainly was not martyred earlier in his life or earlier in time, uh, he still wants to be in the game. He's still got something going on. And from, from John's prison island, he writes back to tell his friends on the mainland, back in the cities of Ephesus and Tyre and others, that uh, he shared with them three things that Christians get. Three things that Christians get. And This is what he says. Christians get tribulation here. They get a kingdom later and perseverance is required now. Tribulation here, kingdom later, you need perseverance now. We can put it a couple other ways. We get trouble here, triumph later, we need to be tenacious now. We get sorrow here, we get sovereignty later, we need to be steadfast now. You can frame it any way you want, but we've got these three things. He says, as your brother in Christ, because you're in Jesus and so am I, he says there's three things that we get. These are them. And we'll look at these one at a time. These are ours, he says, because we're in Jesus. As someone who's a participant in Jesus himself, as those who've come to life in Christ, this is what we get. The first one, he says, is tribulation, trouble, persecution... You know, depending on where you live in history and in the world, this may bring different kinds of thoughts to your mind. What does tribulation or what does persecution look like? Think of it broadly enough that it will include you. In other words, if you just think of of this as Chinese Christians in prison, you think, well, I'm not persecuted. You need to think of it broadly enough that it applies to your life and mine here. So perhaps think of it in this light. Persecution, tribulation, generally speaking, the world and the devil applying pressure to us in one way or another to get us to give up living for Christ, to get us to throw in the towel spiritually, to sideline us spiritually. Persecution, pressure, in one way or another, that leads us or tempts us to throw in the towel, to give up the fight, to get off the field. Think of it in that way. Now listen to three passages out of the New Testament that talk about tribulation, trouble, persecution, Jesus told the disciples, his last night with them, John 15, he said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they've persecuted me, they will persecute you. John says, we get this because we're in Jesus. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. They did persecute Jesus, ultimately, didn't they, to death. He was persecuted. So he says, if you belong to me, you can count on this. You will be persecuted tribulation, trials, trouble, sorrow. One way or another, it will come. Absolutely. And not just the general sorrows of life that all of us get because we live on a world that's cursed by sin and death, but specifically because you belong to Christ, you are going to get trial, trouble, sorrow, pain, persecution. Paul writing in Second Timothy, this is his last epistle. This was written just before the end of his life said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you will be, count on it, persecuted. This may also imply that if we give in to the persecution, if we say yes to the temptation and we fly low under the radar, we'll avoid persecution and trouble. That doesn't speak well of us, though, and that's not what God wants us to do. That's not where we're supposed to live but he says if you desire to follow Christ in this world you will get persecution first peter frames it a little differently in chapter 4 he says don't be surprised shouldn't be a surprise you were warned about it don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you and remember peter's writing peter's experience is of persecution from the beginning isn't it after the resurrection Peter probably doesn't live through the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but he sees plenty of persecution through the end of his life, and he, like Jesus, is martyred at the end also. So he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You know, if you're in China and you're arrested, it's not a surprise. If you're a Christian in the West and you get persecuted, it's like, what happened? Where would that come from? Peter says, don't be surprised. Count on it. It's part and parcel of being a Christian walking with Jesus in this world. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So this is the deal. The first thing John says, I share with you, is tribulation persecution because we belong to Jesus. It's not a surprise. It's a given. Peter says rejoice in it. James says the same thing. In some ways, these texts and others imply that it's to the degree that we share persecutions for Christ now, it's to that degree, so to speak, that we'll share his glory later. Like the guys on Chris's football team, they've, sh- they've shared the shame, so to speak. They've shared the losses. But then when they get the victory at the end, those earlier losses become part and parcel of, of their communion together. Those kind of become their boasts. We won in the end. That's the same thought here. Or like Jesus Christ himself in glory in the future, he still bears scars on his body. His scars become his glory. And for us, when we look back from eternity, our sufferings will be the mark of our glory. They won't feel like shame then. They will be marks of love or association with Christ. Now in all of this, even in this First Peter or James passage, we don't rejoice that our life is difficult. That's not the thought. We rejoice at what God is going to use that for. And also, we don't cling to the difficulty or the sorrow or the sadness or the persecution. We cling to Christ in those times. We're not rejoicing for the hard things, specifically. That's kind of a no-brainer. But God promises to use those, and we'll look back, and we'll be glad for what we endured for his namesake in the future. So in this world, at odds with its maker and redeemer, we'll have trouble because we belong to the one the world has rejected. So broadly speaking, you and I, like John, like the Christians in Turkey at this time, will have persecution. Now, he says he shares something else in common with them. We share the same thing because we belong to Christ. We share a kingdom, a kingdom. Now, it is true that when you and I are saved, when any of us trust in Jesus Christ to to have borne the penalty of our sin for our salvation, Scripture is clear. Colossians 1 says we've moved from the kingdom of darkness and we've moved into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So we're in His kingdom now. That's not what we're talking about here though. And John may imply this aspect in this passage also. You're in His kingdom now. But when you look at this passage and others coming up following it and others in the New Testament... We want to have this sense of what we're going to, and I think that's the primary sense in this passage. Right now, John says, what we share together as those who know and follow Christ is trouble in this world, but we will share in the future his kingdom, this glorious eternal kingdom that he will institute. We'll get that in the future. Matthew twenty five thirty four, a passage I believe is written to Jews. Jesus says, at his return to the earth, this is the sheep and the goats passage, if you know what I'm talking about there. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, future. Inherit this future kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. King Jesus comes back to earth and institutes his kingdom. And those who are Christians, I understand, come back with him to the earth. And to those who have been faithful to him during a terrible time on the earth's history, he says, come into the kingdom. I'm starting it. Here it is. And you're going to enter in. In Matthew 26, to his disciples, the night of the Last Supper, he says, having shared the uh, Passover with them, he says, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This has not happened. We are not all gathered around Christ at the victory celebration table, the victory uh, celebration of the Lamb in heaven. It hasn't happened. He told his disciples there's going to be a day when you and I sit down in my new kingdom and that's when I'll drink this cup, this wine with you again. I'm going to be gone between now and then. I'm not going to be here with you on the earth but we'll toast again at my eternal kingdom in heaven. My kingdom's coming. You'll be there. 2 Timothy 4, again, Paul's last letter. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he knows he's facing martyrdom, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul says no matter what persecution martyrdom in his case, I face on the earth, I know God is going to escort me safely into his coming kingdom. I can't lose. I know where I'm going. I know who I belong to, and I know where I'm headed. I'm headed to his kingdom. That's my hope. That's where I'm going. Though rejected with Christ in this world, the truth is we're poised, every Christian is poised to inherit With Jesus Christ, his eternal kingdom. That's your future and mine. It's the future of everyone who's trusted in him. We'll sit at his royal table. We'll share his royal throne. He said that same night that he's gone to prepare a place for you. That's his palace. That's his mansion of many dwelling places. That's his new kingdom. That's where he said he's gone, preparing the place for us to come. His kingdom will come. It's a certainty. And we'll be there with him. That's our future, John says. So to those folks at the time and to us today, John says we we don't just share trouble, persecution. We share a future hope, our presence with Christ in his eternal kingdom. Now because the hope is future and because the kingdom has not yet come, you remember in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, hasn't happened yet, but will. Because it's not here yet, John says there's something else we share. It's this perseverance in Jesus because it's not here yet. Because we're still in the valley of the shadow of death. Because we're still in the place of persecution and sorrow. We need something. Jesus does provide it, but we need it and it's perseverance. It's steadfastness. It's hanging on and hanging in when it doesn't look like there's any hope sometimes to do so. Look at Luke 8, if you will, or if you like. I'm going to go through three passages briefly for this as well. Jesus says in this parable about a farmer taking God's word like seed and throwing it out on the ground. There's different types of soil. In some of the soil, the seed doesn't even sprout, doesn't even spring up. In other soils, it sprouts, but there's no fruit. And if you're a farmer, you're looking for fruit. He says... But the seed in the good soil, verse 15, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. They've received the word. They hold it fast, hold on to it, and they bear fruit with perseverance. The ground before this was shallow, and although the seeds sprouted, they sprang up. When trouble came, they shriveled away. They didn't persevere. The good soil are these folks that they've heard God's word, they've embraced it, and then they've persevered. They've kept going. They've been steadfast. Romans 5.3, Paul says, Not only this, we exult in tribulations. Not because he, he likes trouble. We exult in tribulations knowing that God will use tribulation to bring about perseverance. Perseverance, steadfastness, hanging in there. And perseverance will bring about proven character. It changes you and I from the inside out. And proven character brings about hope. Hope in the New Testament is always future. Hope is something that's promised that we don't have yet. So when this little litany closes with hope, started with tribulation, trouble, it ends with hope. That's the kingdom. That's the future hope. That's the return of Christ. That's our presence with him forever so that no matter how much tribulation we have here, we know God says, I'll take that trouble in your life and that persecution. I'll change your character from the inside out and I will help you fix your gaze and your hope on the only thing that's sure, which is me and my future kingdom and your presence with me. This will work. Tribulation will bring about perseverance, and perseverance will change us. It changes our character from the inside out, and in the end, we get hope. We fixed our eyes on the person and the promises of Christ himself. So Christ's victory is absolutely sure it will happen, but for us now, in trouble, perseverance is needed so that we're ready to share that victory with him. Satan, the enemy of Christ and of your soul and mine, seeks to distract us, to discourage us, to get us to give up so that we forsake the contribution Jesus wants for you and I to make in this long battle between heaven and hell. Listen to a couple passages related to this. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider... I've thought about it. I've molded over. I've come to this conclusion. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he suffered a little bit, are not worth being compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Think about Paul's life. He is stoned. He is beaten. He is starved. He is shipwrecked. He is imprisoned multiplied times. He says, trouble without, pressures within. And he says, nothing that I've suffered is worth being compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. He knew both sides. He had also been to heaven, 2 Corinthians. Some of it he tells us a little bit about. And the rest he says, I saw things and I heard things that I'm not even allowed to tell you. But this guy, knowing suffering in ways you and I probably never will, but also knowing the certainty of what heaven looks like and what presence with Christ in the future will look like, he says, don't even think about the sufferings. Not even worth worrying about. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, momentary light affliction. Again, think of his perspective. Momentary light affliction. We might think this is Paul playing golf at the country club. Momentary light affliction from his perspective. Beatings, imprisonments, loss, betrayal, you name it. Momentary light affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So with John, Paul's saying the same thing. We've got trouble now. We've got trials, sorrows, setbacks. But we've got this hope, this certain expectation of Jesus bringing in his kingdom and our presence with him. And he said the certainty of that and the value of that is so great that it eclipses any suffering you and I can ever have. This, this is the perspective we've got to get. Because as you know, and if you haven't experienced it yet, you will, if you're a Christian. Life will throw you all kinds of trouble. And the devil and the world will pressure you and tempt you and attempt to throttle what God wants to do in you and through you all your lifetime. And if you and I don't have some glimpse, some light at the end of the tunnel, you will give up. You'll quit. So John's trying to remind them and Paul's trying to remind us there's hope. There's something worth surviving through. There's some... Reason worth keeping going to continue to persevere, to be steadfast, not to give up. Listen to Paul's last words out of 2 Timothy 4. Our men's group studied this Saturday. This is Paul writing to a timid young church leader that he's trying to pass the baton of leadership to. And this is what he says at the end of his days, at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4.6, Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering. I'm like the wine in the cup being poured over the altar. My life is almost gone. The time of my departure has come. <clears throat> I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I've persevered. I've been steadfast. He's not bragging. He's giving Timothy an example for Timothy to follow. Do what I've done. Stay in the fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. He says, because of this, verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All to lo- who have loved his appearing is the thought that that's our hope. Our hope isn't in this life. It's on his return. It's, in, it's on our presence with him. Paul says, that was my hope. That kept me going. I finished the fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Timothy, you need to do the same thing. Listen to Hebrews 10. Again, the kind of persecution we think of going on in other countries. This epistle was written to Jews who were being tempted to drop this new Christian aspect of Judaism. And make life a little easier. And just go back to the norm of Judaism and get rid of the trouble that they've had because they've named Jesus' name. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 32. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, hearing the gospel, believing in Jesus, you endured a great conflict of suffering. You've already suffered, he says. This isn't new. They're suffering now. You've already suffered. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. That's generally where I'm at and you and I are at. Christians in other parts of the world suffer more the first part of that. We generally suffer the second part. We share that with them in the ways we're able. He says you showed sympathy to the prisoners. These were Christians in prison for their faith. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward in the future. Your hope, Christ's kingdom. Verse 36, you have need of endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, when you've fought the fight, when you finished the course, you may receive what was promised, the reward God set aside for you, that he wants to give you. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he won't delay. At the right time, remember at the beginning of, of Revelation 1, the things that will quickly happen. Once this thing begins, it happens in a hurry. And this writer to Hebrews says, it won't delay. The time will be here before you know it. And he says, you've got to endure. You've already been through all this suffering. Don't give up now. Do like I've done. Finish the fight. Finish the race. Don't give up. You need to persevere because the reward, the promise is coming. There's a passage in 1 John with the thought that don't live your life in sin because when he returns... If you're living life the wrong way, it says you'll want to shrink back in shame. Live your life in a way that when that trumpet sounds or when the voice of Christ calls and you see him, you die or the rapture, so that you're glad to see him. You're not ashamed. You're ready to receive the reward, the promise. So persevere, Hebrews says. Well, back to Winston. Churchill, my man, in World War II. In 1940, he's 65 years old. And if you know any of the history, Neville Chamberlain, mankind as we often are, was a fool. They thought they could buy peace cheaply and they were wrong. Chamberlain's government is scuttled and Winston Churchill, the guy who'd been warming the bench at 65 years old, is brought back in to head Britain's government and the monarchy and the people saw in Winston the Bulldog the qualities they needed to get them through this incredibly difficult time they now knew was not a question but was a certainty. In 1940 Germany is already in France and Belgium and Poland is history and there's no doubt about where they're heading and what their goals are now and nothing has stopped them when he takes over. Let me read to you two brief excerpts from two different speeches he made. One is May 13, 1940. He said a phrase repeatedly on this day that he's well known for, but he said, with Germany advancing into Europe and the reality settling in, we're in for a long, long, hard battle. He said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, Tears and sweat. This sounds like Jesus saying, I promise you persecution, blood, toil, tears and sweat. Same thing. He says, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering you ask, what is our policy? What's our attitude? What's our goal? What are we aiming for? I can say, it is to wage war. It is to fight by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. It's to fight. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, it is victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. So here's Britain, small island on the, off the coast of Europe. Europe is going under fast, and England is being bombed. And he says, our policy is to fight. And our goal is nothing short of victory. Surrender, giving up, throwing in the towel in any fashion is not an option. Our survival is at stake. Our very survival is at stake. That was May 13, 1940. June 4, 1940. When he makes this speech, the Belgian army, I believe at this point, has surrendered. Half a million men have surrendered almost without a fight to Germany. Germany. In doing so, they have left all the Allied troops in deep trouble. And the rescue at Dunkirk followed this when I think it was half a million, over 300,000 British troops and other Allied troops fled to Dunkirk because their lines were broken by the Belgium surrender. They were in deep trouble. All they tried to do was escape for the time so that they could come back and fight another day. So in other words, when he makes this next speech, They have suffered a huge setback, and Germany has just taken another huge chunk of France. He said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving... Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. These were words, these and many like them, were words that kept Great Britain, this little British isle, from giving up. In this long battle, and you figure 1940, they still had four to five years of hell to pay before they got to victory. But here was Churchill who comes in and says, nothing but fighting and victory is an option. We will accept nothing less. He said, whatever the cost, no matter the cost, we will fight on. We won't give up. Again, they'd just seen guys throwing the towel. They had seen the effect it had on those around them. Their soldiers were... Blessed! It was God's providence that saved all these guys from Dunkirk back to England so that they could come back later and fight. But he said our policy is we're fighting. We're in this. No matter the cost, we will not give up. Churchill's famous for a speech towards the end of his life in which he simply said never, never, never give in or never, never, never give up. That was it. That was his bottom line. Retreat is not an issue. Surrender is not an option. With Paul, he says, we're going to fight the fight. We're going to finish the race. And here's John telling these Christians, and you remember the days, once these apostolic days and the days that follow. I mean, we look back and you read Fox's book of martyrs or others. The persecution is, in my mind, unimaginable. And it's to Christians, with that kind of pressure, Christians to you and I today who face more subtle perhaps forms of pressure to throw in the towel, to give up the fight, to sit down, warm the bench instead of getting in the game or finishing the race, that John says, there's trouble now. There's a kingdom coming though, and so you've got to persevere. You've got to remain in the game. I ask myself, I ask you in the battle between heaven and hell, are you and I persevering? There's little ways, lots of little ways to just give up, to get out of the fight. Are we as determined to win in the eternal battle as Churchill was to win in the last great world war? He understood the cost of defeat, and he said, This is not an option. Sometimes I think we don't understand the cost of defeat. We think we can give in. We can throw a white flag up for a while. We can get out of the game, and it's no big deal. It is a big deal. There's a spiritual battle, and you and I are enrolled as soldiers in that war. You and I appear now to be on the losing side. But like Britain, we will rise from the rubble and ashes of what appeared to be our destruction and the destruction of the church on earth. And we will rise with Christ more than conquerors to rule and reign in his eternal kingdom. That is the hope. That is the kingdom. That is our future. I'm convinced that you and I today need to make up our mind that with John the Apostle and with Winston Churchill, we're going to endure the trouble. We're going to endure the temptations. We're going to shrug off the allure of giving in or the thought that we can somehow not fight, not persevere. We've got to make up our mind today, and we have to make up our mind tomorrow, and then the next day of what our attitude is going to be. And here are these two old guys still in the fight. John the Apostle on the island, Winston Churchill called back into the game at 65. He's 70 by the time the war is over. These are guys, seasoned guys. They've seen a lot. They've been through it all. And they say, don't give up. Stay in the fight. Don't give in. Fight the fight. Finish the race. It'll be worth it in the end in Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, it is easy and the temptations are routine to give up even in little ways in our life to get out of the fight to get out of the race, to say we're not going to bother persevering or being steadfast in one way or another. And Lord, there are persecutions and pressures, sometimes blatant and sometimes subtle, that encourage us to give up, to give in. Father, help us to make up our minds today that we are in the race to the end, that we are in the fight to the end. Lord, for Churchill and others, in World War II, the stakes were incredibly high, but Father, they are much, much higher in your kingdom. There are people who don't yet know you who need to hear the gospel, and it's by people like us that you do that. There are people who need encouragement and support, and you mean for us, like John did, to be that means of support. Father, there is a glorious celebration to come in your presence when you'll pin badges of honor and crowns of righteousness on those who have faithfully followed you on this earth, and we want to be among that number. Father, I pray that you'll help us jettison anything, any sin, any temptation, any thought that would keep us from with John persevering to the end. God, help us to value you and to hold the hope of our eternity with you so high that with Paul we can say it was momentary and it was light and it wasn't worth being compared with what is coming. And Lord, ultimately, we don't trust ourselves in any of this. We ask your spirit in us to keep the fire of courage and steadfastness lit and bright. In Jesus' name, amen.